They found the body. It was real. Last night, I took my friend Todd out to a midnight showing of Nightmare on Elm Street at the theater. Todd had been bummed out after spraining his ankle just in time to miss the annual 10K Halloween Zombie Marathon. He'd been training for months and had prepared an awesome costume. He even brought finger-shaped gummy candy to shove into his mouth during the run. You know, for realism. He kept joking that he'd eat the other marathon runners if he ran out of candy. I argued that his constant limping would actually make his costume more realistic and that he should go anyways, but he refused, claiming that he wanted to avoid irritating the injury. Todd had always had a competitive streak. When we were younger, he would race me to the swing sets, jump on the couch to distract me while we were playing Mario Kart, and drag me kicking and screaming off of our makeshift wrestling ring made out of sofa pillows. Though Todd wouldn't admit it, I knew he was sitting the marathon out to avoid being the last one to cross the finish line. Bellies weighed down with two tons of popcorn and Halloween chocolate, we started our slow walk home. Mr. Tough Guy acted like he was fine, but I saw him wincing every time his right foot made contact with the ground. Hey, I said, breaking the silence that had followed us since the theater. I know a shortcut to your place, if you're not too chicken shit to take it, I proposed. Todd puffed his chest out and chuckled loudly. <laughs> you're on, dog breath. Don't come crying to me like a little wuss if you get scared, he replied, looking quite proud of his comeback. Although adulthood had made us wiser, certainly not more mature. I turned a corner to lead Todd down the shortcut I had only taken a couple of times before. A cold wind blew through the deserted street. Trick-or-treaters had long since returned home and fallen into diabetic comas from all the sugar. My Halloween coma was going to start the next day, once I bought leftover candy from the store for a fraction of the cost. I grinned as we passed a parked car. What the heck? I said. Todd quirked a brow and turned his head toward me. What? He replied in confusion. The license plate. I answered, motioning to the car. It had the typical three-digit, three-letter format, and its three letters read W-T-H. It's a game. You have to make up words or acronyms out of the letters, I explained. Todd seemed intrigued. He glanced at another car. Oh, I think I got it. So, like, over there. DTB. To be determined if you're dyslexic, he said. A chuckle escaped my lips. I gave him a thumbs up. <laughs> I, I like that. Okay, let's see. Uh, oh, over there. We've got SPK. Spooky? I continued. We both started laughing when we spotted one that read SMB. We kept this up for a good ten minutes, listing out words and acronyms for every car we spotted. We got stumped when we came across XLS, until Todd proudly claimed that it was XL's file format. Shit, <laughs> I should have taught him this game sooner. We turned another corner only to come face to face with a roadblock. Construction crews all over the city were struggling to finish their work before the freeze. Travel had gotten difficult for pedestrians. To get to work that morning, I had to take five freaking detours. Fortunately, I spotted a bike path through a small forest on our left. I had a vague recollection of seeing a path near Todd's house, so I figured we'd get there eventually if we took it. 
I didn't have the heart to tell Todd we had to double back and make him walk on that ankle of his, so I trugged onward, acting like I meant for us to go there. I spotted an unmarked black van just outside the entrance and nudged Todd to look at it. Check out surveillance van number six. He didn't tell me the FBI was watching your neighborhood. I joked. He stuck his tongue out at me and replied, They're here to monitor you, bud. After a good laugh, we wandered into the path. We were surrounded by trees, which were being eaten away slowly by the frigid autumn air. Small clusters of brown and yellow leaves still clutched the menacing-looking branches above us. In the darkness of every night, they looked like hundreds of bats wanting to descend on us. And that's... that's when I saw him. A hooded man standing no less than 20 meters in front of us. A shovel in one hand and a bulky pillowcase in the other. He seemed to have come out of nowhere. At first, I mistook him for a lost trick-or-treater, but I soon realized he was far too old, and what I thought was a bag full of candy had an eerie shape and dripped an unknown liquid onto the leaf-covered ground beneath it. For a moment, time seemed suspended. Neither Todd, the stranger, nor I made a single move. If not for the thrashing sensation of my heart beating against my chest, I would have thought we were in a movie that someone had paused. My eyes slowly trailed towards a pile of dirt just next to the gravel road and then to the large hole in its shadow. My mind was racing. Every inch of me wanted to run. There was something so unnatural about the scene. It was as though the air itself had become tangible and heavy. So very heavy. Todd looked as white as a ghost. I think he was coming to the same conclusion as me, though neither of us dared to say it out loud. The hooded figure, covered in dirt, suddenly dropped the pillowcase. It hit the ground with an unnerving thud. Something rolled out of it. I couldn't make out what it was at first. It was furry and damp. As it continued to roll, I realized I was looking at it. A head. Holy fucking shit, it was a woman's head. Her lifeless eyes lay open, staring right into my soul. A length of her spine dangled from what was left of her neck. Her hair was soaked in blood, and flesh had gotten tangled into her locks. Adrenaline surged through my veins. We had to run. I looked at Todd, hoping to see the face of a man ready to escape. Instead, I saw a scared boy, frozen in place. We couldn't stay there. We were going to get killed if we didn't run. A shameful thought crossed my mind, and even now I struggled to admit it. I thought of leaving Todd behind. He was in no condition to run. He would only slow me down. Maybe, just maybe, if I left him there, I'd survive. My body trembled violently. The adrenaline was making it hard to decide between fight and flight. The stranger made the decision for me. Shovel in hand, he bolted towards us. I grabbed Todd violently by the arm. Shit, Todd, run! I screamed, hoping to all hope that I could pull him out of his stupor. I didn't care how badly his ankle hurt. I yanked him back and he finally responded. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, screamed Todd. We started running back down the way we came. Todd was slow, 
and the crazed, decapitating madman gained on us. To make matters worse, he was laughing. I can picture Todd and I getting brutally cut up into pieces by a chainsaw as this guy laughed and laughed over our mangled remains. It's a prank, howled the man behind us. He dropped the shovel and waved his arms in the air. It's for you two, he screamed louder. Todd and I slowed down, my cheeks flushed red as we came to a stop. I cupped my hands to my knees and inhaled deeply. What? I mumbled. The stranger laughed louder and pulled down his hood. He was a fairly normal-looking Caucasian male in his thirties. He pointed to the wooded area. We're filming a Halloween prank. Oh man, you should have seen your faces. He said. My head was spinning, playing catch-up quite inefficiently. Todd began laughing so hard. Oh shit. Oh my gosh. You got us good, man. He replied, heaving a sigh of relief. I was still too rattled to comment. I genuinely thought I was going to die, all for a stupid YouTube video. It took me a few minutes to compose myself. The prankster introduced himself with his YouTube handle, which I regrettably cannot remember. He asked for permission to use our reactions, and Todd enthusiastically agreed while I gave a nonchalant, consensual wave. He smiled broadly. Great, we're going to need you to sign a consent form. I didn't print enough, so I'll just email it to you guys. Where do you live? He asked. In a friendly tone. Todd answered immediately. I wasn't quite as eager. I'm from out of town. I'm staying over at his place. I lied. Todd understood. I've never been big on sharing personal information with strangers. I usually glare and refuse to give out my postal code to cashiers when they ask me. Why the fuck do they need that information anyways? I'm buying something from their stupid store and I just want to go home. Stop asking. In any case, a stranger jotted down Todd's address and we were left to our own devices. We continued down the bike path and stopped near the hole. Todd playfully prodded the severed head with his fingertips. <laughs> cool. Feels real, he told me. I refused to touch the prop. The rest of the way, Todd chirped and laughed about how we were going to be YouTube stars, teasing me about how frightened I looked earlier. I, on the other hand, couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong and added very little to the conversation. The prankster kept saying we and motioning to the trees as though someone was filming in there. We spoke with the guy for a good 20 minutes, but his buddy never came out. I never actually saw the camera, nor did I feel another person's presence there with us. I shrugged it off his nerves. Todd and I parted ways and headed home, feeling silly about how freaking scared I was. It took me a while to fall asleep, but eventually exhaustion won out. This morning... I woke up, turned on the TV, and started making breakfast. Just as I began to butter my toast, the screen turned red, and breaking news scrolled on the bottom of the frame. Police had unearthed the severed remains of a woman in a shallow grave on the bike path. 
Her torso and legs were found in an unmarked van not far away, along with an unidentified man's arm. Oh, shit. Since then, I've been ringing Todd up on the phone. He's not answering. I've texted him. I've emailed him. I made a stupid Twitter account so I could tweet him. No answer. Why isn't Todd answering? It's hard to believe that just a week ago, my Christmas tree stood tall and proud in the corner of my living room, bringing me so much joy. Now, I find myself wishing the damn tree had never been brought in my home. What few pine needles remain on it are brown, and its trunk has been over like an inflexible person reaching for their toes. My ornaments have scattered across the floor, but I don't have the strength to pick them up. I'm really feeling sick these past few days, and it's getting worse. Last week, I returned home from work and found a post-it note on my door. Used your shower, left you a gift, XOXO, mom. My parents retired a few years ago and moved to a campground away from the city. It was nice and all, but they didn't have running water in the winter, so they occasionally stopped by to do laundry and a shower. When I opened the door, Rex, my Labrador, greeted me excitedly. I know, I know, it's a really stereotypical name. In my defense, I got him when I was nine, and I was all about dinosaurs back then. I still am. I have an awesome T-Rex magnet in my fridge that isn't going anywhere. Rex was surprisingly spry for his old age, and I happily met his demands for attention. Running my hands over his soft black fur, I removed my coat and threw it in the general direction of the nearest hangar. Rex, tail wagging like a metronome on steroids, dragged me to the living room. I smiled as I saw the beautiful Christmas tree my parents had left me. Rex spread out under the tree on a white blanket that had been draped around it and playfully nibbled at the bottom branches. The next day, I put on some holiday music and dunked through boxes to find my ornaments. Rex thought he'd helped me by pulling out random objects and hiding them around my house. There was a sweet scent in the air, like nutmeg mixed with candle wax. I had likely failed to close the lid on one of the Christmas candles. The clumped-up sugar in my cupboard was proof of my lazy lid-closing ways. Rex was particularly fond of my new garlands, and helped me unravel them all over the living room floor. It took me 15 minutes to undo all the knots. He loved watching me struggle. After finding a nice array of older ornaments from my childhood and newer ones I bought myself after moving out, I began decorating the tree. I remember the year when I got Rex. He was sitting under the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve wearing a big red bow. We'd been friends ever since. As I continued to hang ornaments, I spotted a few yellow pine needles. I carefully plucked them off and tossed them into the garbage. Their absence did not take away from the tree's splendor. After a while, I noticed Rex wasn't by my side anymore. I looked around my house and found him curled up on his doggy bed, which was pretty unusual in and of itself. I only seen him sleep there twice since I bought him the thing. Rex much preferred the foot of my bed. All tuckered out, huh, boy? 
I tease, scratching him behind the ear. He whined lowly and closed his eyes. I let him be, it took a few moments to send my parents a thank you email with a photo of the decked out tree, and then started on supper. Before sitting down at the table, I opened a can of Rex's favorite food and poured it into his bowl. I called for him, but he didn't come. He was probably exhausted from the decorathon. I ate alone for the first time in years, and the silence was deafening, but at least I could enjoy the view as I devoured my meal. My tree looked beautiful. I checked on Rex a few times that evening, but he was fast asleep. <laughs> Lazy bum. My dad answered my email and told me that they were canceling our plans for supper the next day because they'd come down with the flu. I gave them strict instructions to get some rest and then followed my own advice. I was starting to feel rather worn out myself. Over the course of the following days, I saw a steady decline in Rex's health. I was afraid it was his time. I dreaded it so much that it gave me nightmares. I could barely keep myself from tearing up at work. We'd been through so much together, Rex and I. I wasn't ready to say goodbye. I came home one night to find a collection of yellow and brownish pin needles under the tree. It was starting to thin out, like the top of a middle-aged man's head. I vacuumed the mess, feeling really guilty for being unable to keep the damn tree alive. It was a gift, after all. And what would my parents say if they saw it in such pitiful condition? I stopped in my tracks and realized I'd forgotten to greet Rex. I ran to his side and dropped to my knees. I didn't even have to touch him to know that he was gone. My lips quivering and my eyes dripping, I gave him a final hug. I'm sorry I wasn't there to say goodbye, I murmured. I had to call my friend to take care of him. I, I couldn't do it myself. The next few days passed in a blur. I was so distraught that I called in sick from work. It wasn't a complete lie since I felt like I had caught what was ailing my parents. I emailed my dad to tell him about Rex. He loved the dog almost as much as I did. He liked to kidnap him for week-long camping trips. He claimed we shared custody of him. Though my parents' laptops were typically at arm's reach, I didn't get a reply. Dad was probably moping around the campfire and needed space. I coped by turning into a complete hermit, leaving the house only once to take out the trash and overflowing recycle bin. I can't remember why the recycling bin was so full. I don't recall putting so much stuff into it. Meanwhile, the Christmas tree continued to decay. It was too much of a wreck and too worn down to bother taking it out of the dumpster. I let it rot slowly in my living room. Since yesterday, I've been getting these awful headaches, and my nose keeps bleeding. I spent most of my time lying in bed or sitting at my computer. I wish Rex was here. I wish my parents would reply to my emails. I'm so lonely. I called the friend who took care of Rex for me, but she couldn't stay on the phone very long. Seems like I gave her my flu. I wish I wasn't looking at my pathetic excuse for a Christmas tree. It's slouched over and not even a single ornament left on it. The screen's getting all blurry. I'm probably going to bed soon. As I was typing this, I heard a faint hissing sound come from the tree. 
I lethargically wheeled my chair over and leaned in to listen. It was like the sound of air escaping a tire, and it was coming from a tiny black tube sticking out of the trunk. That's when I realized something. The tree had no scent. I should have been able to smell pine or rot or something, anything. Then I remembered why the recycling bin had been so full. My mind was distracted when I took it out, but it was coming back to me. There had been a large, crumpled cardboard box with a picture of a tree on it. Artificial Christmas trees aren't supposed to die. Oh, man. I'm starting to feel really dizzy. I'm going to go lie down for a while. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. Unless you're hundreds of miles away from home with no nearby friends and family. Then it's just kind of depressing. I hadn't even been thinking about the holidays when I'd accepted my new job in early December. I was too caught up in the stress and excitement of moving to think an hour ahead, much less three weeks. It wasn't until my mom called to make sure I was settled in that I realized my predicament. So... Can we expect you back for Christmas? She asked. Unable to keep that helpful note out of her voice entirely. Oh, I paused. Pulling the plates out of the box, I'd been unpacking and glanced at the calendar I'd hung on the kitchen wall. Sorry, Mom. I can't. I've got to work the day after that. That's all right, she said. We'll miss you, but we understand. It would be the first Christmas that I'd ever spent apart from my family. No big reunion at my grandparents, no turkey feast, no opening presents with my siblings and cousins, just me, alone, in my apartment. Determined not to let my favorite day of the year go by without any fanfare, I went out and bought a fake tree, some ornaments, and a few small decorations to put up around my place. It didn't feel quite like home but it was better than nothing. I sent some photos to my parents. They sent some of their house, all done up in red and green cheer, and I said I'd video chat with them on Christmas. Christmas Eve found me snuggled up on my couch with an eggnog in one hand and Ebenezer Scrooge surrounded by Muppets on TV. I'd worked a full shift and was starting to doze before the ghost of Christmas past had even made its appearance. There was just something so... Soothing about the colorful glow of the lights from the tree and a familiar childhood film playing in the background. Three sharp knocks rattled my front door. I jumped, almost sloshing my eggnog down my front and sat up to peer at the door. It was close to nine at night. I couldn't imagine who might be stopping by. A friendly neighbor dropping off cookies? A delivery man making his last stop for the evening? Neither seemed very likely, considering I had yet to say so much as hello to anyone in the building, and the guests from my family had already arrived. I set my glass down and got up to pad softly to the door. Knock, knock, knock. My face was only inches from the peephole when whoever was on the other side knocked again. I could just hear that they were muttering to themselves, but it was too quiet for me to make out any words. 
I rolled my eyes at their impatience and peeked out to see who my unexpected visitor was. The hallway outside of my apartment was empty. I remained in place, pressed up against the door with my breath held, trying to see as much of the hall as possible. Someone had just been there. It didn't seem possible that they'd have been able to run off before I looked through the peephole. Increasingly nervous thoughts began to pop in my head. What if they were crouched out of view? What if they were waiting for me to open the door? Mom had been very worried about me living in a new city all by myself and had warned me repeatedly about what could happen to a lone woman who wasn't careful. I double-checked the deadbolt and it was locked and then, as an added precaution, slid the security chain into place as quietly as I could. After another minute with no sign of anyone lurking in the shadows, I stepped back and shook off the chill that had crept over me. There was no point in getting myself freaked out over what had probably been someone knocking on the wrong door. I left the movie running on the television, and the noise from it made me feel less alone, and grabbed my phone to head to the bathroom. This was nothing a hot bath couldn't fix. I settled into the water with a sigh and rested my elbows on either side of the tub to hold my phone up. You still up? I asked my mom in a text. Yes, she shot back almost immediately. She picked up on the first ring. Merry Christmas, Shannon, she said cheerfully. I could hear loud conversation and laughter in the background. You at Grandma's? Yeah, we got here a few hours ago. Uncle Sam and Aunt Mary are here with their kids, too. Steve and Gail arrive tomorrow. What about you? How are you doing? Okay. I wish I could be there, though. You sound a little off, sweetie. Are you sure you're okay? Nothing ever got my mom. I hesitated, tapping the fingers of my free hand against the tub. Yeah, just got a little spooked. Someone knocked on my door. Don't worry, I didn't answer it. No one was even there when I... It occurred to me mid-sentence that the line had gone quiet and I frowned. Mom? You there? She didn't respond. I pulled the phone away from my ear and saw that the call had disconnected. In the top left corner of the screen, instead of bars, it read, No signal. Perfect, I grumbled. I stretched over the edge of the tub and set my phone on the pile of clothes on the floor before sinking back into the water where I stayed until it cooled too much to be comfortable. Once I had drained and I had towel dried, I went to my room to change into my pajamas. At first I thought the distant clinking of pots and pans I heard as I tugged my shirt on was coming from the TV. Tiny Tim's family was finally getting their turkey feast, but... The soft singing that followed was certainly not from the movie. It was an older woman's voice, gently warbling a tuneless version of some carol. And it was coming from my kitchen. My first thought was to call the police. My second was that my phone was still in the bathroom where I'd left it on the clothes. Walking back to it would put me in clear sight of the kitchen. How had I not seen a person in my apartment when I first come out? Has she seen me? More confusing and unnerving, how had she gotten inside to begin with? 
I had double-locked the front door, the only door. It wasn't like she could have gotten through a window, either. I was on the second floor. As my thoughts raced, I tiptoed to my bedroom door and poked my head out just enough to look down the hall. The overhead light that I definitely had not left on illuminated the kitchen and the short, stout woman who was standing in the middle of it was staring back at me. She looked like I imagined Mrs. Claus would. Her round, grandmotherly face lit with a warm smile the moment her eyes met. There you are. Come out, it's time to eat, she said with an encouraging wave of her hand. I remained in my doorway, one on the door, ready to slam it shut. Who are you, and what are you doing here? What am I doing here, she tutted. Why wouldn't I be? I always come round to see you for Christmas. It's tradition. I side-eyed the bathroom across the hall. Surely I can make it before she got to me. She was only an old woman, after all. An old woman who had somehow gotten herself through a deadbolt and security chain without me hearing. Come along, dear. I've made your favorites. Turkey with stuffing, green beans, even those sugar cookies you love so much. She started moving about the kitchen again, grabbing a pair of oven mitts I didn't recognize and tugging open the oven. Who are you? I demanded again. Stop being silly, it's grand, she replied over her shoulder. While her back was turned, I took my chance, sprinting from my room toward the bathroom. I'd barely made it into the hall when the door slammed shut in front of me. Behind me, the bedroom door did the same. I grabbed the knobs and tried to turn them, but they refused to budge, and I was left stranded between them with no place to go. My heartbeat thundered in my ears, and I stood there like a rabbit facing down a fox. Except my fox was a geriatric home invader who could apparently close doors with her mind. She had turned back to me and was holding up a covered turkey pan. Her cheeks had taken on a pinky hue. She was smiling cheerfully, as if nothing were amiss. Supper's ready. I've already set the table, so just have a seat. I didn't move. I could barely remember to breathe. Her smile flickered just slightly, allowing a second's worth of darkness to cross her features, but then she was clucking her tongue in a good nature reproach. She set the pan down and bustled toward me, ignoring my desperate attempts to shoulder open my bathroom door and get to my phone. Her plump fingers closed over my wrist and she tugged me toward the kitchen. I began to scream. You're feeling spirited today, aren't you? Was all she said. Someone had to have heard me, I thought wildly. They'd come knock or call the cops or do something, but no one came to check on me as the woman who called herself Grand pushed me into a chair at the dinner table. I glanced toward the front door, still locked and chained, but then Grand was standing between me and it with her turkey pan clutched in both hands. Here we are, she said in a sing-song voice. Tuck in, dear. She placed it in the middle of the table and removed the lid. Smell hit me first. 
strong and putrid, rotten. The meat that still clung to the carcass sitting in the pan was gray and had a slimy sheen. In its cavity, tiny maggots wriggled about in the mush that might have been stuffing at one point. It was surrounded by potatoes, carrots, and green beans, all black and withered into husks. I shoved myself back from the table in horror and disgust, a hand over my mouth. What's wrong, dear? Gran asked, her face pinched with concern. A flush had started to rise up her neck. It's your favorite. Why are you doing this? I cried. It's Christmas. It's tradition. I started to stand, but she pushed me forcefully back into my seat. Maybe some sweets will get that appetite of yours going. Don't worry. Old Grand's got just what you like. I stayed in my chair, trembling and whimpering in a way I didn't know I could while she fetched another plate from the kitchen. She held it out toward me with an encouraging shake. Go on, dear. Cookies were lined up in two neat rows. Green fuzzy mold sprouted thickly on every one of them. I leaned away, retching. The flush had spread to Grant's face now. She was still smiling, but it was with clenched teeth. I worked very hard to prepare all this for you, dear, she said with strange cheerness. Take one. No. Grant's grip on the plate had tightened so much that her hands were shaking. With a frustrated howl, she hurled it to the floor at my feet. The plate shattered, scattering bits of ceramic and cookies in every direction. I was too terrified to make a sound. I could only stare up at her through painfully wide eyes. She inhaled deeply and smoothed her skirt in quick, jerky strokes. Her face had gone from a warm pink to a rosy red. You know you really don't deserve this, but it's Christmas, and maybe this will improve your sour little mood. She said thinly. I've put a present under the tree. Why don't you open it, hmm? When I didn't move, she took me roughly by the upper arm and dragged me across the room to where my Christmas tree was set up. A large oblong package wrapped in wreath-covered paper was placed beneath it. Please, no, I just... I just want to go. Please. I begged, pulling in my arm, but... She held on tightly. We always open one gift on Christmas Eve, dear. Graham practically growled. It's tradition. The redness in her face was deepening into crimson. I could actually feel heat radiating from her skin. She pushed me to my knees and stood over me, her arms crossed over her chest. Any semblance of holiday merit was gone from her features. Go on, she said. I looked to her from the gift and slowly reached for it. A name card dangled from the top beside a green bow. Merriest of Christmases, dear. Love always. Gran was written across it. I could feel her eyes boring into me as she waited for me to open the gift. Reluctantly, I peeled back one corner of the paper, revealing the top of an old-fashioned birdcage. Immediately, my stomach sank. I swallowed hard and ignored everything in me that said not to open it any further, but Gran had started to tap her foot impatiently. 
I tore the wrapping back further, lying at the bottom of the cage in a mass of feathers were the skeletal remains of two birds. Turtle doves, dear, Grant said from over my shoulder. Just like in the songs. You always said you wanted some. I shrieked and knocked the cage away from me. It fell onto its side and rolled a few times, leaving a trail of bone and feather behind it. The woman who called herself Grand screeched in fury. Her skin had started to blister and crack, and the more she bellowed, the worse it became. I scrambled backward on my bottom as the blisters darkened and crackened and peeled back, their edges crinkling like thin paper. Wisps of smoke were curling upward from her hair while she clawed and tugged at it. The apartment filled with the stench of burning flesh and our combined screams. Mine terrified, hers enraged. I bumped into my couch and used it to pull myself to my feet. Grand flailed wildly, the fire that burned from within growing and consuming and catching around her. My tree ignited with a loud crackle. I threw myself at the front door, but the deadbolt wouldn't turn. Smoke burned my eyes. Her endless screaming rang in my ears. It was getting harder to breathe. Gran, engulfed in white, hot flames, was coming towards me, arms outstretched, snarling, You ungrateful child! Sobbing and choking, I launched myself over the couch. The smoke had become so thick, I could barely see. Every part of me prickled and stung from the heat. But I had to get away from Gran. I had to get out. And there was only one way. I don't remember jumping through the window or getting cut up by its broken glass. I don't remember landing in the snow two stories down or being found by the neighbors. I don't even remember going to the hospital. All I remember was thinking amidst the hysteria in my head was that I never want to celebrate Christmas again. <laughs>